Welcome to part 2 of the first episode of a series of podcasts on the Indian economy. My name is Vivek Narayan and with me is Dr. Amol Agarwal, assistant professor at the Amrit Modi School of Management at Ahmedabad University. In part 1, we briefly covered the time period before naturalization of the banking system under Indira Gandhi. The second part goes into the detail of what happens to the banking system post nationalization through the 80s and 90s. and lands upon demonetization and the current banking crisis of 2019 let's begin with a short recap so far cooperatives were at the center of the rural and agricultural space Yeah. now this owners shift to the commercial banks commercial banks suddenly overnight uh, some of them pretty much grew in the city cities and so on and so forth i very little understanding of rural and agricultural space right so they were basically pushed into and it's it's extremely fascinating to the audience out here who was hearing the read these two accounts by ig patel and uh, who was the who was at that time the chief economic advisor right and uh, dn ghosh who's written a recent memoir and he was at the finance ministry and both of them have a very interesting narration of how nationalization happened it's it's quite interesting that how overnight indira gandhi just kind of you know decided to nationalize and gave them so little time to uh, in fact there was a parliamentary session uh, which was which was going to resume in couple of days time and she wanted to do all this through an ordinance and through very quickly because right. there was obviously this impression that this is not going to go through if if it was to go through the parliament so uh she just kind of uh, you know completely motors through this and uh, overnight this whole thing changes yeah so all these limited private limited banks now become public sector banks and there is a new entity by the same name so andhra bank limited sorry punjab national bank limited transfers all its assets and liabilities to this new entity called punjab national bank which is a government yeah. entity mm-hmm. so this is this is just a sort of a you know accounting entry and uh, and the money is given and there are there are all these debates about and what form will the compensation be given to these owners and so on and so forth and now this whole churning begins i mean suddenly you have all these rural uh, these commercial banks most of them city based they have to go out and open branches in the rural areas and you know give it more give more rural lending so in 10 years time it's quite amazing how the rural banking indicators from being very exclusionary became so inclusionary i mean suddenly you have almost 60 uh, there were just about 20% of the branches in the rural areas and at the eve of nationalization by 79 that about almost 65% or so and uh, likewise the rural uh, the agricultural lending picks up to some 20% or something like that i have that i have that data i, I can always share it you know it increased many fold and for a long time there was a belief that you know commercial banks cannot do rural lending and so on and so forth or they cannot really venture out of the rural areas nationalization completely proved them wrong because there was a lot of emphasis and suddenly the entire machinery in the finance ministry and everybody really bagged indira gandhi's whole plan and you know you you ended up really pushing the banks into the rural and that but then i think in banking that's always this there is always a trade off right i mean so when you push them into the rural areas so 70s is where you see the spreading happening and then you have priority sector loans you have some more targets and more things coming to the banking side and, and this 80s, is probably running in parallel with the green revolution right the green revolution is in the 60s okay so this is now after the green revolution then. yes okay okay so essentially you could you could call it maybe the rural banking revolution 
but by the time 80s come in a lot of this thing gets exhausted you know you you basically ran these banks completely without very without any focus on profitability without any focus on efficiency without focus on anything you're basically just running the banks and asking them to open rural branches without any cost uh, business considerations so, so loan mela so, as they would so say. so then loan mela is actually start in eight, in the 80s uh, so so despite running the banks through the you have uh, you know people who wanted to impress indira gandhi and this this whole loan mela concept comes up and uh, you again you know begin to give loans to all kinds of people without any collateral so by the end of the 80s banks are totally done and dusted i mean there are there is very little profitability little uh, resources and what also happens is that uh, you know a lot of the banking resources through the uh, through through the statutory liquidity ratio and uh, you know basically go to the government so basically statutory liquidity ratio means that any deposit you raise you've got to park certain funds into the government securities which means that the money goes to the government directly so so though that ratio got went up to almost 38% so the banks typically had very little loans to give they were very high priority sector loans 40% uh, kinds of kind of ratio is going to priority sector loans on which anyways you're going to get you know returns are low on top of this most of the resources are spent in the in the government securities which again are giving you low interest rates or not as high interest rates as you could get in loans so a lot of mismanagement and a lot of problems begin to con- begin in the 80s and then we quickly come to the 91 reforms where you know you realize that look nothing nothing is working it was a great moment said okay we've got to really get out of all this and and this you know, would then be narsimha rao and uh, right, manmohan singh and, uh, so dr manmohan singh yeah so they pretty much shake up the whole system and they said you know this cannot anymore continue and in the in the banking space this is very famous committee by narsimham uh, who was uh, the former rbi governor for for an year so he basically gave this whole uh, you know reform uh, kind of a template on what to do and uh, the idea was to you know start with more start consolidating public sector banks and also you know open more private sector banks give right. licenses to so from 69 uh, before 69 as i said uh, there was banking was largely private barring state bank of india which was a which was a government bank the all the other banks were basically in the private sector space from 69 onwards uh, you nationalized the 14 banks but they were very small banks they were hardly there to really challenge and over a period of time their share you know even reduced uh, and some of those banks were again made rbi was still doing cleaning up activity and i think by the time of uh, 91 you had some 50 odd banks remaining or something like that so from the 70s odd some 50 odd were remaining and uh, so then they said you know in order to break the monopoly of public sector banks and in the 90s what also happens is that you know you have these new new norms coming in the basel capital norms have come in which could not be put to public sector banks because there was absolutely no capital really there to implement any of these norms and you had these atms this new technology at that time new technology which was coming in and you said you know we'll open these new private sector banks and ask them to have the best and the highest technology so the public sector banks can eventually catch up with and uh, so narsimham committee basically suggested two things uh, one is that you kind of you know open new banks uh, give licenses to the new banks new private sector banks and also consolidated consolidate the public sector banks now so what uh, typically i think the government route was that okay they initially license the new sec- new banks but somehow that banking licenses did not uh, really generate into i think we gave some 10 odd 10 to 12 licenses and of them almost four or five ran into trouble right away 
so and they because they were uh, undercapitalized or no there was this fraud uh, there was this uh, ketan parekh fraud where ketan parekh had taken funds from this newly licensed global trust bank and uh, had siphoned funds from there to invest in the stock markets and so on and so forth so this was the big stock market uh, this was what let's see this would have been 93 or 94 no this was the this was 90 uh, 9 99 2000 the, the ketan parekh You are attributing is the ninety one nine sorry ninety two Harshad Mehta scam. Ah, that is sorry, a big one. I got confused. Yes, yeah. So, uh, so Harshad Mehta's time. I mean, they 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 decided that they got to clean up even the capital markets, and as a result, SEBI comes in to the picture. SEBI starts looking looking at the capital markets. RBI, you know, starts looking at this whole banking system. Uh, but as we license these new banks, uh, you realize that you know uh, there was it's it was not a good experience really. so uh, one was thinking that the new private sector banks the newly licensed private sector banks are going to set the agenda but you actually had to you know clean up that activity too so in that process i think this whole consolidation of public sector banks stopped i mean it was not really it, it didn't really start at all uh, and uh, so in that i think now zooming to 2018 19 the the government is consolidated some of these public sector banks uh, and of the so there were 14 then six more were nationalized in 1980 so that makes it 20 and then you had the state banks and there were some of these princely state banks which were existing uh, you know i have not really covered that maybe we need a separate session on this so there were in total 27 public sector banks uh, and now they've all been consolidated into 12 uh, so this goes back to the narsimham committee suggestions which had anyway suggested to you know consolidated consolidate some of these public sector banks mm-hmm. uh, so it took a long time so it also is a reminder to us that reforms are not something where you you know announce something and you know it gets away it gets done away in, in typically political economy of india especially i think some of these things take a long 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 time right? as they say uh, many a many a slip between cup and lip yeah absolutely so uh, and uh, you know we then after even the 91 reforms there was we never really had a government where you know you could take so some of those decisions could never be taken uh, and we kept going back and forth back and forth about uh, the role of uh, cooperatives the role of commercial banks the role of private banks the role of public sector banks so i think going back to where it's how this conversation started from the conference so we could reflect you know some of these things uh, the last 50 years uh, in the indian banking history and which was the purpose of this conference as well you know the idea is to reflect and then say okay what do we do what do we do going forward right. and as we are we are in 2019 we are going through a cooperative bank problem we are going through commercial banks problem we are going through the nbfc problem i think our whole banking uh, system is into a serious serious problem so okay um so we have had now uh, five five and a half years of the uh, bjp led modi government mm. mm-hmm. and before that we had uh, 10 years of the congress led dr manmohan singh government right 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 and that has sort of provided india with a reasonable amount of stability post the chaotic sort of 90s right the mm-hmm. late 80s early 90s sure. and mm. i would say most at least the, as less chaotic if right. not stable i mean i think i think people aren't very familiar with uh, with how chaotic indian history actually is like if you right, right, if right. you go back and you kind of see okay you know starting from the early 1900s 
independence, mm-hmm. post-independence is actually very, very chaotic. And I don't think people mm-hmm. really have a great appreciation for it. There's this big sort of accusation against the uh, Manmohan Singh government, which is that they compromised, they, they compromised fiscal soundness in lieu of this, in lieu of growth. Um, right. Is that, is that true? That, that that's mostly a, I feel a mostly a, it's either whispered by certain people or it's this like large political argument. I'm not quite sure what to make of it, but I sort of wanted to get your thoughts on that. And then maybe after that transition to what the BJP led government is actually doing, like their philosophy on you know, the government has no business being in business. And then, you know, they've, they've introduced these large sort of uh, corporate tax cuts. Um, mm-hmm. The Indian economy has been slowing for the last 18 months. We literally have not grown um, for 18 months. Uh, the last time this happened was uh, actually in and around uh, 2013 and 14, just as the elections were coming in. So there was this, no, sorry, uh, 2011, 2013, I think uh, the last uh, couple of years of the uh, Manmohan Singh government. So just walk us through those, uh, you know, what do you make of that accusation? Uh, how, how true is that? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? And then, yeah, actually, uh, yeah, surely I think the, the fiscal, some of those things were compromised. And I think, you know, it's just, it's just very interesting history, which somehow comes in, uh, and I think that's why I keep stressing to my own students to kind of focus on economic history. I mean, you find it very bizarre that how come kind of a government which had Manmohan Singh, a fairly eminent economist, if Manmohan Singh had not joined politics, uh, he was pretty much, you know, a top economist, not just in India, but across the world. Uh, he was yeah. internationally. You had Manmohan Singh, you had Montek Singh, you had Kaushik Basu, uh, you had Raghuram Rajan, who was an advisor to the government advisor to the prime minister, you had Dr. Rangarajan. I can't really, and there could be some more names I'm, I'm kind of, I may be missing. How come they didn't understand some of this fiscal and uh, you know, some of these things which they were trying to do and how did they allow uh, you know, some of these things to be missed? So this is still, this, this is this whole puzzling thing that you have so many great economists uh, of you know, their own generations and stuff like that who've handled policy making, who've handled uh, you know, some of these things for a long time, how did they not understand that what they're trying to do is eventually, you know, going to backfire in terms of where we were and what we were trying to do. So all this fiscal profligacy and so on and so forth pretty much started in 2004 after UPA comes in. And uh, surprisingly, because everybody was thinking that Vajpayee's government is going to come in after India shining campaign, but India was not shining up not doing well so you needed that was a big marketing flop uh, i remember i was um, i had just finished medical school at that time and it was just mm-hmm. you know like there was pie in lots of people's faces at that point in time but yeah, no sorry so, go ahead yeah yeah so there you you said okay we need you know the rural side so for, so, so all these years you've got to keep in you've got to understand that this rural rural history rural economic history is very important and each time it keeps coming back, whether it's nationalization, whether it's cooperative banks, whether it's economic reforms, whether it is the 2004 juncture where Manmohan Singh and they came up with a common minimum program where they, you know, they said, you know, we're going to provide, you're going to again go back to. So it's very interesting that, uh, you know, there's a lot of criticism of, uh, you know, that last 70 years, things have not been done. But I think from 91 onwards, India did try and open the, open up the economy for 50 years. Maybe we 
it was a closed economy very protective you're not but for 20 years typically bjp comes in 98 99 under the swadeshi paradigm and they were very closed i mean they wanted to promote but then i think vajpayee and all these guys understood and you again you know started opening up economy you started disins, uh, disinvesting some of those public sector corporations and stuff like that some of the navratnas at that point navratnas at that time and yeah. all of that begins to is not really the public doesn't understand any of this and uh, so the common minimum program is enacted uh, sonia gandhi pretty much takes charge even if she is not the prime minister you know there are these dual power centers but then you know it's kind of very interesting I, i'll come back to this uh, you know i'll connect these ideas later but so what india tries to do is that in the period of 2004 to 2008 we see fairly high growth and at the same time congress is trying to you know distribute some of these things it's not really you know that the growth is only at least through the program now whether that program works or not works that i leave it into other discussions and i think there is there is a fair bit of back and forth whether whatever congress tried to do in that period of time whether it worked or not you get narega going you get the right right to food right to this you know right to education you know some of these things which come in which and what what was also interesting is that vajpayee regime was trying to get away with subsidizing oil prices now mm-hmm. that again comes back you again go back and you say okay now the oil and the i think that was i think to me a bigger blunder you could have just allowed the oil prices to float on their own which could have taken care of the oil subsidy bill which bloated significantly around 2001 12 period of time which further put stress on the fiscal so couple of things begin to go go here and then the and so far till 2008 till the global financial crisis happens things are okay i mean the fiscal deficit for all its all these programs because of the high growth the fiscal deficits were con- continuously coming down and chidambaram had basically achieved it by 2007 and he was very confident and in fact you know it's it's very interesting that actually rbi was looking at this possibility of india having fiscal surpluses can you imagine now That's, are you serious uh, yes uh, and uh, i i heard uh, you know one of these rbi uh, uh, chaps rbi uh, senior uh, management speech in 2010 some, some around that period where they were actually thinking about the possibility that india will actually have fiscal surpluses and if there are fiscal surpluses what what is going to be done because typically you need fiscal deficit when you have fiscal deficit then the government issues bonds and those bonds right. become part of money markets and stuff like yeah. that and when you have fiscal surpluses then where do bonds come from right so some of those things were being discussed it's, it sounds and, uh, almost oxymoronic that we actually have money but now we can't make more money this is weird yeah so then this whole thing changes and 2009 is when elections are just coming up you have a lot of fiscal room and you know you go whole hog wire and you basically the fiscal deficit from chidambaram was looking at some 2.5% or 2.2 2.3% it goes to 6. Point something and in a year's time i mean in, in in a few months time because of the lehman crisis uh, they they lower the taxes a lot of government ex- government stimulus etc etc so now one effect of this was that india kind of got away with the crisis much faster now but there are two stories to this one is this whole rbi story where you know the financial uh, innovation so called financial innovations which affected the west were not really you know active here Uh, and, and just uh, for everyone's reference what what you're referring to is the uh, collateralized debt obligations and those sort yes and all these uh, you know housing securitizations and stuff like that yeah. interestingly 2005 is when uh, 2005 2006 is when the government is very comfortable with what's going on you have a lot of foreign money coming in and they are further trying to imp- uh, you know make indian financial system like the west 
a couple of committees are are, are set up here to make Mumbai as a financial center and you know open up and the when sector. You but say, uh, when you say like the West, what does that mean exactly? Are you trying to say um, um, from a regulatory yeah, so the, perspective or from a financial innovation type perspective? Financial innovation perspective. Uh, okay. In, the, in that sense, that you know you want some of these products to begin to trade in India. So like securitization and, uh, of. Um, not just securitization, India. You know. Pretty much, you know, the Chinese saying of feeling the stones while crossing the river. Uh, I think this has been, uh, this is even, even though we kind of did reforms, we were very careful in doing some of those reforms. In right. 2006, there was, a, there was a thinking that, you know, we've been way too careful and we should allow RBI's regulating too much. There's a, there's a space for RBI to regulate less and allow more of these financial innovations to come in. Right. So and, an uh, element of hubris has crept in because we are yes. now... Uh, we are now our fiscal you know, policy there. is too good <laughs> but we had this uh, we had this person called yb reddy he was not very sure of what's going on right and uh, he pretty much didn't allow some of these things to happen and at that time rbi he was seen as the worst governor in his own words and after the reform after the crisis he was seen as the best governor as not just in india governor, but yeah. but outside outside too i mean you know there are there are comments by joseph stiglitz and so on and so forth who say that you know if yv reddy was the governor of federal reserve then maybe these problems wouldn't have happened now that's a, that's oh, a very that's tall high praise yeah that's very high praise so yeah. so again uh, so we avoided the 2008 crisis now that's what i said now there are two stories to it whether it was a fiscal stimulus or the larger stimulus from rbi also because rbi cut rates you know the iceland the ireland and you know others had gone into right right so there are both sides of the story and now, I think but, uh, uh, a part of the story is also is that I think was it sixty sixty five percent of the economy was internally driven at that point in time. I don't yes, know, the exactly. Yes, yes, yes. Consumption consumption was a, still a major player there. Absolutely right there. So we kind of somehow just escaped the crisis. I remember in Jan two thousand nine. So September Lehman falls, uh, the rates crash, fiscal deficit uh, begins to go up, and then quickly our the rest of the world is still dealing with a crisis. India is, you know, looking like, you know, we are going to have an inflation problem. Fiscal deficit is going up. The bond yields begin to go up uh, and so on and so forth. The equity markets begin to recover. And there's a general feeling that growth is also begin, beginning to go up and so on and so forth. And again, I think what you're saying about hubris, UPA1 becomes UPA2 and it's now minus the left. And for all you know, UPA2's, all the criticisms is also very interesting because UPA2, when it, was, when it came into power, I mean, when it was elected again, the stock markets actually went through a stock filter. You know, the markets were expected, markets went yeah. really up. Yep. And uh, because people were thinking that without the left government and with so many economists and reformers around, we are, you know, going to really do very well. Yeah. And we've kind of avoided the 2008 crisis. And, and it is here where, you know, the, the story begins to change completely. What also happens is that you have this Mumbai attack. You, the home ministry was not, was seen lacking. So Manmohan Singh gave the home ministry in 2009 to Chidambaram taking away the finance minister portfolio from him and giving it to Pranam Mukherjee. Now, Pranam Mukherjee has been the finance minister in the 1980s, but that era was very different. It was more right. of a social era and, you know, you, you had, you needed, you know, different kind of a finance minister to handle this. But I think this was, again, a mistake. And by the way, there's a great book uh, by Pooja Mehra on the lost decades. And that book has just come out. I should send this thing to Pooja. And so she's been, uh, she's pointing out how the, the lost decade uh, of India and uh, she's pointed out to some of these things and there are all these stories which go around uh, that even if uh, Pranam Mukherjee was made the finance minister Pranam Mukherjee basically rolled back all the reforms and there was this whole jealousy that uh, basically Pranam Mukherjee had appointed Manmohan Singh as the RBI governor when he was a finance minister and I had heard about this yes and when it came to prime ministership most people are thinking it's Pranam Mukherjee would get it 
but wow, manmohan yeah. singh takes it over so yeah. there was this internal jealousy or something of this sort now i don't buy some of those conspiracy theories but so all all of the work which chidambaram and all these guys were doing basically firstly you allow the fiscal stimulus to go on for a long time you allow subsidies to go on for a long time and this whole fiscal space you know is much wider you know right. the fiscal deficit instead of it being rolled back it continues to be in the system and some of those subsidies are very ineffective there's that and you know you know what's interesting is that if you look at any of those uh, budgets post budget analysis especially by the top corporates and so on and so forth everybody is praised the budget you know despite it eventually and then all these corporates basically dished congress like you know like the upa2 in in very very quickly once they realized that there's an alternative coming up in 2013 2014 this is uh, very interesting that you're saying that because i mean look i think corporate india is has always been rather two faced when it comes to these sorts of um that's just my personal general sort of you know very few people oppose nehru in fact for all nehru's plan uh, there was a bombay plan a lot of books have been written on it of late which where the corporates themselves had you know basically given a planning approach to the government i mean instead of really opposing it to the nail and there's this whole book the east india company by uh, william darum dalarimple who's mm-hmm. reviewed the east india company history and he points out that how east india company was basically successful because of the the indian merchants here who basically were very willing to finance and provide resources to east india company willingly so yep. so each time you have this whoever is in the power the the corporates pretty much you know bow uh, their hands and just stick to that power well i mean yeah. you know big business and politicians and politics they they go hand in glove uh, globally so it's not um, it's not just uh, in india but i think um, and it, it's kind of strange because we have this conversation that's going on right now which is like oh corporate india is afraid to talk to the modi government right but you know when it actually comes when they're supposedly not afraid to talk to the government then they're still being you know disingenuous so to speak mm-hmm. so um Uh, it's an interesting sort of i don't know a relationship that uh, the government has with uh, corporate india um, right, so at least the legitimate side of corporate india i mean there's this entire illegitimate side which you know we don't necessarily have to address at the moment uh, i mean i'll just kind of get back to where we were and yeah. all this fiscal profligacy now what is something which is very disturbing is the role of rbi now I still have a lot of regard for RBI as an institution having read its history and you realize the turmoil and the and somehow professionalism in RBI has been very high and uh, you know something which very very disturbing is the banking problems I still cannot make sense of why India has so much of a banking problem in fact in the conference uh, Dr Rangarajan who who's with Ahmedabad University is distinguished professor he was he's been the servant of he's he's pretty much served Indian economy for such a long time for them you know politics comes and goes for for them to understand that okay how where was rbi in all this i mean how did rbi allow such a massive banking problem uh, to come in because as i said 1949 is when rbi gets its sweeping powers to regulate banks so basically it's all these banks have to be supervised by rbi rbi has this whole team of supervisors likewise you have a team of supervisors for nbfcs you have a team of supervisors for cooperative banks and only thing which you didn't have is the housing finance companies which are again in trouble which are also in trouble and rbi has also got powers to supervise them you know in the in the as per the recent budget and the new right. power pretty much have a very very uh, you know comprehensive sort of control over some of these things now going there's a speech by urjit patel in 2017 or 18 where he sort of says that okay even if public sector banks are you know regulated by rbi but the main powers remain with the government because they appoint and as per the act the rbi can do only so much but even then you know there is an rbi person on the board there is uh, 
they, they are supposed to supervise. And unless it's high time that some of these things are made public, I mean, people should know really what, where is, where are these errors really creeping in? How is it now? You have all these institutions like chief election, com- like election commissioner, like RBI, like SEBI. These are all institutions which, which are supposed to tide over the political cycle. Politics can come and go. The powers can come and go, but you cannot really do certain things based on the whims and fancies of politics. Uh, so that's actually least- quite a serious, I don't want to say it's a serious accusation, but it, it sounds like what we're suggesting is that some of these institutions are not independent or certainly are not behaving independently. Um, yeah, sure. I think they talk about independence, but there is no accountability. Now, if you look at it, look, look at, I'm not saying that people so should are you Are you drawing a distinction between accountability and say being beholden to the quote unquote, the political class? Because those are two different things, right? No, I would say accountable to the public via the uh, you know, since RBI doesn't really go on to explain to the public, uh, they, they basically report to the government, whatever they report and so on and so forth. I mean, that's how the structure is. It's very disturbing because as I said, in the, from the forties, uh, from the 1949, when RBI gets this regulation act, they've done a fairly commendable job of cleaning up the banking system. You know, this was, I think a fairly strong activity of RBI. They somehow got the supervision and the regulation bit, you know, it was a, it was a low key activity but they got it mostly right. They were kind of doing things. They're pointing out to some of these things. Now, we'll only know whether RBI was actually pointing them out and our government was ignoring it when this phase of RBI's history is written. Uh, we don't really know. None of, those, none of those things are really out in public domain. In fact, it's only when we, you know, people always say that it's post 91 or in fact, 97 is when RBI becomes an independent entity. But even before 97, You've always had governors and RBI team, deputy governors, always, you know, opposing the government on certain, some of those moves. Right, right. Fair enough. Now, yeah. we'll only get to know whether RBI was dissenting enough for what is going on, because I find it unbelievable. Now, if you look at the reports, uh, you know, there's this report on trend and progress of banking in India. There is there's a financial stability report. Now, all these reports have been written for a long time now. You know, all these reports, you're telling us that things are good. Things are okay. That doesn't work. As a regulator who, th- who if things are not okay and, you know, you, you see certain things not really going in the right direction, then you must just, you know, point them and let, uh, let people figure it out. But if you are kind of hiding them behind and hoping that, okay, only at 20 years down the line, some history is going to be written and then this is going to be made public, then things don't improve. So right. what is needed is if those reports are just coming out and they're just camouflaging problems. What it's do you think would be those... the motivation behind that though? Like, I mean, are they trying to, uh, would they be trying to protect themselves? Would they be trying to protect the economy? Would they be trying to uh, protect the government, the, the current, the, the government in power at that point in time? I mean, no, I don't know. I mean, this is where, uh, you know, some of those things should be real time rather than waiting for the history to be written. Now, history is very important, having, being a history person myself, uh, that you're talking about independence, you're talking about now all this while RBI governors have spoken a lot about independence, but independence is fine. But where is the accountability? Now, if these kind of problems are going on in, under your tenure, are you just going to walk away saying that, okay, we did our best and the government didn't hear. Instead of that, you tell us what did you, what were you really telling the government on these things? And is there a, is there a public record where, you know, some, some of these things are, you, you spoke against them. And uh, right now, uh, you know, going back to the original, the initial conversation about slowdown and this, that I'm actually even more worried about the kind of banking problems because they just don't seem to be ending. So, Uh, okay. So uh, this is, you've, you've sort of brought us back to, um, uh, uh, an interesting sort of question, right? Which is, we know that there's a huge problem in the quote unquote, the banking sector. I'm just going to call it the banking sector. For the right. banking. Um, there has been some new regulation that has been introduced by mm. the current uh, central government. Mm. Uh, do you think that's addressing the problem in any meaningful way? Um, and if not, then 
what exactly can be done about all of this yeah i mean i think thanks to actually coming back i mean there's some context needed so where you said okay i'm i'm actually accusing or uh, it's not so much of an accusation now what what goes on is that after the 2009 this kind of a problem inflation begins to go up right and, uh, and you know suddenly the, high growth but high inflation yeah. yes and then suddenly you your growth collapses and you have high inflation and uh, india comes into this fragile five so a lot of attention is on inflation i mean and all this while the problems were gradually picking up in the banking sector and i think collectively rbi as an entity does a very bad job of you know seeing uh, this whole bank uh, this banking problem coming in you know then you have the subsequent governors who continue to focus on inflation though rajan comes in he tries to do this asset quality review and maybe if his tenure was extended then he could have done something about it but the banking problems remain ignored right and from the banking we move to non banking finance companies we move to housing finance companies we move to cooperative banks it's it's alarming i mean i mean if a cooperative bank which which is which is in mumbai i mean right their their offices just below rbi it's not it's it's not in some bihar or you know some some random place here and there some up where i am from where you know there is it's it's right there it's a bombay based cooperative bank and it is taking funds from hdil i mean sorry hdil is taking funds and there is whole uh, you know which you, which you only hear in commercial banks how is it that a cooperative bank and some of those supervisory supervision reports which rbi gets and this was a bank which rbi supervises it should have been very easy for rbi guys to spot that you know this all this loan is going to one player in the real estate sector and you know okay so, so like this is um, you're you're obviously you're referring to the pmc banking uh, right, right. scandal i'm going to call it right. a scandal it is a scandal <laughs> uh, I, let's just break that down okay because you mentioned hdil um right. you should probably elaborate on who and what hdil is and to your point they had no business borrowing money from uh pmc but we should probably also expand on what pmc is just a little right. bit and uh, yeah so why don't you why don't yeah you so this again goes back to the whole cooperative bank thing where this punjab and maharashtra cooperative bank based in bombay uh, starts in 1984 i mean i'm now i'm beginning to realize that this bank was originally promoted by the vadva family which interestingly uh, ran the hdil firm as well i mean which is the housing development and ah is that that's an interesting link i wasn't aware of that yeah so those are all things which are which are just coming up now uh, which which have been revealed by people so all this while uh, you know the cooperative whole structure is is very different where you've got the state government participating and so so you got to submit these papers to the registrar of cooperatives the papers go to rbi so obviously these papers have been okayed and then you begin to go on it looked like a stable bank it was seen as one of the large 10 largest uh, urban cooperative banks now the cooperative banks in india are of various kinds let's stick to the urban cooperative banks so which the pmc bank the punjab and maharashtra cooperative bank uh, is basically one of the it's larger fairly, ones it's it's one of the larger ones and uh, in fact larger than some of those small private sector banks i mean some of those uh, private sector banks which uh remember i said 20% of the uh, deposits remained with some of those small finance banks small cooperative right. banks small uh, private sector banks and which some of them remain so some of these urban cooperative banks are fairly large i mean it's not uh, are larger than some of these private sector commercial banks so in that sense uh, you know it's not like 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 say some small fuddy duddy bank you know which uh, you know you can ignore and do away with this is a major fiasco on several fronts i really don't know i mean the parliament should have held a hearing and should have called all these guys 
and ask them to summon uh, i mean they should they should have summoned all these guys and asked them to kind of explain how did the pmc cooperative bank i can still you know understand some of these commercial bank problems there is that you know you've given but some of these fraud cases uh, those lessons have to be understood i mean and i i, I think the just like it happened in the west uh, where the the biggies and the mighties are called and before the before the senate and before the parliament and you know given they have to explain what they were doing and why did this happen i think something similar should have happened here too but this is i think to me still something which doesn't make sense i mean how is it that you've had people dying uh, some some of these people who couldn't get money from pmc banks some of these people dying out of nervousness a lot of money into the into the whole thing so i mean their entire savings are into the bank and people thought that the cooperative bank this one would be a stable bank uh, it doesn't look good at all right no um yeah. so uh, briefly touch upon uh, who hdil is oh sorry um, sorry and um, you know so, so hdil is this real estate company which again operates out of bombay and they make all these apartments and fancy uh, uh, both uh, commercial and uh, residential projects they've got a lot of these infrastructure projects it used to be a fairly interesting company they used to have all these uh, big uh, featured ads in all these newspapers and stuff like that one of those premier bombay based real estate companies okay so, and so uh, hdil borrows a ton of money from uh, pmc right. um i believe it was 60 to 70% of their entire yes. balance sheet or something right. it was just something ridiculous like yeah and then uh, what happens to hdil they basically go belly up right right so what a lot of these projects uh, now this whole real estate is always a tough bit uh, where you know you lend money to them is in the banking system and then some of those projects don't do well in that sense the bank is unable to pay money sorry the the the, the real estate company is unable to pay and then it becomes your it becomes a bank's problem right so um my personal sense was that demonetization and some of the problems that we're seeing in the real estate Mm-hmm. sector are linked mm-hmm. to each other um yeah sure this is, this is the way i look at it because you know it was clear that there was uh, a lot of black money in the real estate uh, sector and then come demonetization suddenly it is unbelievable to me that 99 point how much percent whatever it was whatever the money that was in circulation suddenly just magically appears i mean where did that like i don't know what happened how that happened but it was just completely astonishing to me um, no demonetization is, is a if one could you know start putting india's problems i think it started with demonetization for sure because uh, there is no government in the world which uh, you know does something like this and knocks off so much currency overnight Well, had, this was the second time that India had done. Yeah, that, so right? third time. Uh, third time. It okay. happened in the. It happened in '46 during the British and '78 under again uh, the Morarji Desai government. Each time they go, uh, the RBI, RBI governor put foot and uh, put put his foot down and said that you know look, we I'm not I'm not in this. So then it went through the ordinance route. This demonetization was special because it went through the RBI board. Now in the RBI Act, uh, that's another thing where we don't really. as economics we don't really focus on law and acts but some of some of these things are extremely important to understand so in, in the rbi act the central board the government on the on the recommendation of the central board which runs the rbi uh, can basically uh, declare some of the notes as not legal tender this was basically the british thing uh, and i think the intention there was preventing counterfeiting because counterfeiting was a big uh, headache for british all across wherever they had colonized and you know the nationalists would always you know try and counterfeit the currency and currency is right. always seen as one way to fail the government right. so 
but this time demonetization they used it to kind of say that okay all the series under the 500000 rupee notes are knocked out which constituted 86% of the currency uh, in the 46 and the 78 uh, you know you if you 46 and 78 if you if you demonetize the, the 1000 and the 10000 rupee notes there it there was a case for it in the sense that there were very few people having that kind of note i mean uh, you had these kinds of notes running in it still made sense that you want to penalize the rich uh, by with that it it just formed about some point 1% or so of the currency in circulation so it didn't really affect the overall economy uh, but this time it was 86% because 500 rupee note and 1000 rupee note was used all across it was not just for black money but for and that's the reason why 99% of those notes came back because everybody had them i mean okay and, uh, so, so um demonetization i think we're going to probably carry on with a, another uh, episode right. but so yeah so coming back so demonetization is so since you're absolutely right that much of this real estate money uh, real estate deals happen through the cash transactions because you don't want to report them and uh, it's always you know how much what percentage of money in any apartment you pay through cash and that's obviously since none of that could be arranged uh, real estate companies and housing and everybody begin to begin to collapse having said that housing prices have not gone down you can tell when like uh, there's a there's uh, the markets are too hot is like when your mother right. is giving you real estate advice that's yeah. <laughs> so, okay no no but that's the i my she's quite erudite no i was that was just a joke but, no you um, are you, you are too erudite too <laughs> anyway so yeah. um whatever impact demonetization may or may not have had but it certainly had some uh, the real estate sector in india is i think cooled would be I think I think surplus inventory is probably the best way to describe it right, right. now. Um the housing the, the prices obviously haven't gone down but there's there's a lot of stock in the market so this right. Uh HDIL uh goes under takes right. PMC along with, with it, it. With um it. Sure. and uh, the collateral sort of damage to that is that you had a lot of individual uh account holders and suddenly right. they're, they're they're worried whether you know their savings exist or not. um mm-hmm. i believe there was a run on the bank or there was at yeah. least fears Almost, of a run yeah so basically before the run rbi kind of put restrictions saying that okay you can only withdraw so much you can only withdraw so much you can only withdraw so much so and and, and have those restrictions been uh, lifted yeah or? they've been eased they've been eased okay do we have a sense of uh, what sort of a how how well or how poorly the uh, the bank is capitalized at the moment uh, at the no, it's obviously very poor. all the cooperative banks are very poorly capitalized it's quite quite interesting that currently which nobody believes i mean that's another problem which which faces rbi that nobody believes the the non performing loan numbers of the cooperative banks which are lower than the commercial banks and even of the nbfc so essentially under rajan what they did is that rajan was not very happy with uh, the numbers which are reported by the banks he always thought them to be much higher so he did an asset quality review where some of those easier uh, npa classify some of those classifications were tightened and as a result you know suddenly from a 5 to 6% npa problem we moved to a 12 to 13% npa problem because some of those npas were not really you know recognized as npas right and so i think uh, for everyone an npa is a non performing asset non performing asset so i think yeah. you uh, in the west they call it non performing loans uh, there are these different uh, nomenclatures for so basically all you are saying here is that that part of the loan which is not going to come back right uh, it's a, it's okay. a basically debt that should be written off so now there's a feeling that you know you need a similar asset quality review for the nbfcs you need a similar asset quality review for the cooperative banks because nobody believes that cooperative banks will have lower npas than commercial banks right right so, um so, you mentioned uh, nbfc nbf yeah the non banking finance companies so okay, essentially so, these are all these entities which are 
which are into truck finance, which which give you home loans and so on and so forth, but not really classified as banks. So essentially, the difference here is that banks basically raise money through deposits. These guys raise money through bonds and borrowings. Okay, so it is a it is a legitimate going concern, but it's not. Yeah, it is it is a legitimate going concern because you always will have these gaps. Now banks can only do so much. They are they are they are over, overly regulated. So you always have these. NBFC kind of companies which are supposed to be more innovative and they get into you know things which banks don't get into. So something like truck uh, finance, home finance. I'm guessing their regulation, the the regulatory control over them would also be slightly different because if you want them to yeah, do innovative lower. things, then yeah, okay, great. I'm looking at the time uh, and right. So I think sort of, we are running out of time. Well, I think what we should this is a good, uh, good time to like pause the right. conversation, and I'm actually going to stop the recording right now, and then we'll just quickly okay. debrief sure, a little bit. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Okay. That was part two of the episode. There are a few themes that emerged. Rural financing remained problematic pre-liberalization, and as the Indian markets opened up in the early 90s, the central government decided to reintroduce private capital because there was too much concentration of public sector banks. However, it seems where banks are pushed to lend money, these endeavors are linked with mismanagement and fraud. We critique RBI's role as a silent spectator and one can understand why today's interest rate cuts haven't flown through to the consumer. It seems like the Indian financial sector lurches from one crisis to the other and when not in crisis hubris or perhaps populist expenditure creeps in. And despite 15 years of relatively stable governments India still faces stiff challenges which will only exacerbate given India's reliance on external resources of energy but also its commitments to tackling climate change if these are topics of interest then please do let us know we're considering doing episodes on them and any feedback from our listeners would be a good external validation for us join us again for part 3 where we sum up the boom bust trend of the indian banking and financial system and where we discuss the economic slowdown and what we expect to see in the budget for financial year 2020-21 thank you for listening <laughs>